My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. If you've heard this quote before, it sent chills down your spine. It probably sent you into a roar of excitement, just a huge fist pump. Just, yes. If you don't know where this comes from, it's the moment of a big reveal. This is the moment when Maximus confronts Commodus, the new emperor of Rome, who took the throne by killing his father, Marcus Aurelius. Commodus ordered the deaths of Maximus's family, while Maximus, the one who Marcus Aurelius chose as his heir, was captured and forced to compete in the gladiator games until he died. Well, with years of training and experience, Maximus is an elite soldier and dominates the gladiator games. His prowess in the arena quickly wins over the crowds, but his identity remains concealed. The people simply know him as the Spaniard. Maximus is biding his time to reveal his true identity. The thing that keeps him going, that motivates him to risk his neck in the gladiator games, is to one day look into the eyes of the man who killed his family and get his revenge. And he does it. When he's finally able to make it to Commodus, Commodus forces the Spaniard to reveal his true identity. It's then when Maximus removes his helmet, looks into Commodus's face, and spoke some of the coolest words in movie history. <laughs> and you should have seen the look on Commodus' face. The script says, literally, he trembled in disbelief. What an awesome moment. And have, you, have you ever thought why we love moments like this? Why we love stories like this? Maybe it's a part of our craving for justice. What's wrong should be made right. Crimes deserve to be punished. Maybe it's that. Well, I think it's a little bit more than that, though. The real satisfaction is revenge. What makes the gladiator story so captivating is not just that Commodus gets justice. It's that Maximus gets personal revenge against Commodus. He gets to stand over him and look in his eyes. And we love stories about revenge because we secretly crave the moments when we get to tell someone, I told you so. <laughs> we sing about this in pop songs like Mean by Taylor Swift. We hear it from celebrity acceptance speeches at award shows talking about all the people from high school who called them weird, and now look at them. We admire sports players who turn pro, who say they are determined to prove all of their critics wrong. Coming out on top over those who worked against us is deeply satisfying to our pride. <laughs> 
today, we come to the close of the book of Genesis. And we encounter a story about a big reveal. The young Joseph was left for dead and sold into slavery by his brothers. And although events for Joseph don't turn for the better immediately, he will go through a meteoric rise in the ranks of Egypt. He will get a chance to look into his brother's eyes one more time. He will have an opportunity to reveal himself, assert his dominance, and say, take a look at me now. But, as we'll see, that's not quite what happens. Joseph doesn't buy into the narrative of personal revenge. There's something else that centers him. There's something else that motivates him. And that's God's providential control over all things. God's good plan allows Joseph to acknowledge his brother's evil while not letting it cripple him. Indeed, God's providential control gives Joseph the eyes to see that nothing can thwart God bringing about his promises. So this story of Joseph, this story of Joseph teaches us a lot of good lessons. But it ultimately shows us, as one author writes, that God brings his promises through his providence. God brings his promises through his promises. That's the main point of our closing part of Genesis. That although God appears to be in the background, he's actually the main character. It's in this story that we see the pattern of God putting his promises in almost impossible situations, yet still somehow bringing them about, maximizing the glory he gets. So as always, we'll see how this impacts us and how this story in particular fits within the grand story of the Bible. So the road ahead for our time together today looks similar to our time discussing the story of Jacob, Joseph's father, in chapters 28 to 36. So we'll trace the flow of this story in chapter 40 to 50 so that we know what's going on, and then we'll close by spending time reflecting on what's the big idea for the whole thing. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40, if you're not there already. Genesis chapter 40, you'll find that if you're using one of these Bibles in the P-Rack on page 33. Genesis chapter 40, and just a reminder if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the uh, chapter numbers are the large numbers in big bold print, and the verse numbers are the little itty bitty numbers uh, underneath those. Genesis chapter 40 on page 33. And as you're turning there, you'll remember if you were with us last week that we left Joseph when he was in prison. Joseph was the first son of his father's favorite wife. His dad, Jacob, later called Israel, loved Joseph more than all of his brothers. And he did it in a way that was really, really obvious and kind of ostentatious. He gave him this colorful royal robe that he didn't give any of his other brothers. And Joseph's brothers hated him for that. 
But Joseph didn't exactly help the situation. You see, he has these dreams of his family all coming to bow down to him, and he keeps on telling these dreams to his brothers, kind of poking the bear a little bit, until one day his brothers have enough. They plot to kill their little brother. Well, thinking this is a little too far, Judah, the fourth oldest, suggests that they sell Joseph into slavery. So off Joseph goes to Egypt. The author then recounts how Judah made a series of bad decisions, which led him to have children with his widowed daughter-in-law. And eventually he recognizes his sin, and he starts on the road to repentance. Meanwhile, Joseph in Egypt is in a similar dark situation, although his situation is not of his own making. It's out of his control. He's enslaved, and then he's falsely accused of rape, and then he's thrown into prison. So we ended last week, chapter 39, and the last word seems to be humiliation. But we reminded ourselves that humiliation can't get the last word. Because we know who God is. We know how the grand story of the Bible ends. And those things reaffirm to us that humiliation can't be the last thing for these characters in Genesis. But for for all that, for knowing all that, this still seems like quite the predicament. After all, this is supposed to be the family of promise. Remember what God had told Abraham. It was in Abraham, in Abraham's family, his descendants, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And subsequently, that that serpent of old that led Adam and Eve into sin would be crushed forever. It was through his family. But along the way, we see Abraham and his family fail time and time again. But God works in them. And God keeps his promise going. He does this with Abraham. Then he does this with Abraham's son, Isaac. Then he does it with Isaac's son, Jacob. And now he does it with Jacob's sons. He works in them and he keeps his promise going showcasing his glory and his wisdom and his mercy. So once Joseph is in prison, there are several ways you could trace the flow of the story of his life as we close the book of Genesis. In our time, I thought it best to think of it in four different stages. They all begin with the letter T. Turning tides, testing brothers, taking them back, and to the future. No verb on the last one. I know, I failed you. Um, So chapters 40 to 41, you can kind of follow along as we just kind of go through this briefly. Chapters 40 to 41, we can see how the tides are beginning to turn. So when Joseph is in prison in chapter 40, he proves the value of networking, that it's all about who you know. Not really, but he ends up meeting two guys who had direct access to Pharaoh who was the king of Egypt. And he probably meant them, you see in verse 4, as a result of Potiphar, his old boss, 
says the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. So who were these two guys? Well, one was Pharaoh's chief cupbearer. This was the guy who would make sure Pharaoh wasn't poisoned. And he was often, uh, cupbearers were often a confidant for kings. And the other guy was Pharaoh's chief baker. Even back then, they had personal chefs. So while both of them are in prison with Joseph, they have dreams. And Joseph sees that their dreams were troubling them. And he expresses confidence that God is able to give the truth behind their dreams in verse 8. So he tells them what they mean. The baker's dream meant that he will be put to death. But the cupbearer's dream meant that he would be restored to his position. So sure enough, both of these things happen. And then Joseph realizes that he's going to know someone who's on the outside. He, not only that, he's going to know someone who knows Pharaoh, who has his ear. So he tells the cupbearer, hey, when you get out, remember me. I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. Seems pretty reasonable. Well, then we go to chapter 41 and discover in the very first verse that it took two years for the cupbearer to remember Joseph. And verse 1 says that very matter-of-factly. After two whole years. It doesn't say what went on for those two years. I can only imagine what went on in Joseph's mind for those two years. So two whole years. And it wasn't until Pharaoh has a dream for himself that the cupbearer's memory is finally sparked. He tells Pharaoh that there's this Hebrew in prison who he knew who can tell him what his dream meant. So Pharaoh summons Joseph into his presence. And again, Joseph states that he has no intrinsic ability to interpret dreams. Rather, all of that interpretation, all of that truth, as we see in verse 16 of chapter 42, all of that comes from God, not him. And even Pharaoh himself is going to recognize that the wisdom in Joseph is not from Joseph. It's from God. So Joseph tell, tells Pharaoh that his dreams mean that there will be seven years of plenty in Egypt and then there will be seven years of famine. He then tells Pharaoh what he needs to do to prepare for this time. And the plan is so great. The plan is so wise. The plan is so well thought out that Pharaoh says to Joseph, well, why don't you do it? So, all of a sudden, Joseph is taken from prison and is put into second in command of the whole country. Could you imagine? He's been waiting for 10 plus years. And now he has this rise in a matter of probably minutes. Joseph gets a new role. He gets a new name. He gets a new Egyptian look, a new Egyptian wife. And all the while, he remains loyal to the Lord. Look how he names his sons in chapter 42, verses 50 to 52. The significance behind those names. It says, God has made me forget all my hardship 
and all my father's house. His other son, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now friends, that same reality is going to be true for us, for those in Christ, that when we reach glory, everything here, all that affliction, all of that hardship, it'll seem light. It'll seem light. That's the first stage. The next stage, testing brothers, begins by telling us what's been going on with Joseph's family, who's still in the land of Canaan. So the, fam- the famine in Egypt didn't just affect Egypt. It also affected the land of Canaan. So Jacob, Joseph's dad, knows that his family needs food. And he, hear- he hears where they can get some food. They can get food in Egypt. What the brothers don't know, what this family doesn't know, is that in order for them to get food and save their lives, they must be reconciled with their younger brother, Joseph. So when they make their way to Egypt and Joseph sees them, he recognizes them, this doesn't happen right away. There's no quick reunion. Now, it doesn't seem like Joseph is enacting revenge because he could have just been more blatantly violent. But he doesn't welcome them with open arms either. Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they have changed. So in chapter 42, Jacob sends the rest of his sons to Egypt besides Benjamin the youngest of them all, Joseph's little brother. And when these men arrive, they see Joseph in charge of the food distribution, but they don't know it's him. They tell Joseph their family situation, and Joseph begins his test of them by taking one of them prisoner, Simeon. He says that he'll give Simeon back to them once they prove that Benjamin is alive. Further, unbeknownst to his brothers, Joseph puts extra money in their baggage to see if they'll return it. So they go back to Canaan. They go back to their dad. And the brothers have to convince Jacob to let Benjamin go back with them. And to try and ensure Jacob of Benjamin's safety, Reuben, the oldest, says in chapter 42, verse 37, that if Benjamin is taken, that he'll offer his two sons. Oh, very noble of you, Reuben. Judah, on the other hand, at the beginning of chapter 43, tells his father that he will give himself if Benjamin does not return safely. That is what persuades their dad, Jacob. So his brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin and the extra money in hand. And Joseph releases Simeon. And then when Joseph sees his younger brother Benjamin, he is overcome with emotion and has to sneak away to cry. It happens throughout the story. Joseph's just overcome with emotion. But he's not ready to reveal his real identity yet. He still has one more test for them. When in chapter 44, he constructs a plan to make it seem like Benjamin, the youngest, stole something. Joseph wants to see 
whether or not his older brothers will sell out their younger brother like they did to him, or if they'll rally around Benjamin. So when the plot works and Benjamin is accused of being the culprit, Judah steps up. Judah offers himself in his brother's place. It's a moving plea that goes from verse 18 to 34 in chapter 44. Notice verse 33, chapter 44. Judah says to Joseph, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Those two powerful little words. We saw them at Mount Moriah when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But there was a ram. Those two powerful little words, instead of. Instead of. It brings us to the third stage, taking them back. So at the beginning of chapter 45, Joseph is so moved by Judah's heart, he drops the charade. He finally bursts out, I am Joseph. And the brothers naturally are just stunned. Joseph reassures them that he's forgiven them. Verse 7 of chapter 45, he tells them, God has sent me before you to preserve life. And then Joseph makes arrangements for them to live in Egypt while the famine is going on. And Pharaoh gives them what he called the finest land in all of the country, a place called Goshen. And then Joseph tells his brothers, bring dad back here. Bring Jacob back here. In chapter 46, that's what happens. Jacob learns that Joseph, the son he thought to be dead, is alive. And he says that he will go to him. And God assures Jacob that he indeed should do this. And the entire caravan loads up so that Israel, the people of Israel's beginnings, start off with 70 people in the land of Egypt. It brings us to the last stage, to the future. When we head into chapter 47, we're left wondering, well, what will happen in Egypt? Will they prosper there? Will they retain their commitment to God's covenant with Abraham? Will they still be committed to the promise of the land of Canaan? Who will lead them? Well, we find these answers in the closing chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 47, everything's going according to plan. Joseph manages during the famine and the family settles down in Goshen. The people of Israel are thriving, while the Egyptians, ironically, accept enslavement to Pharaoh in exchange for food. And as things are going well, it's time for Jacob to say goodbye. Chapters 48 to 49, Jacob gathers his sons to tell, him, to tell them how God's blessing will be passed down and gives predictions about the future of each of his sons. He begins with Joseph's two sons in chapter 48. 
shows that Joseph will get a double portion inheritance, says that Joseph's younger son will get a greater blessing than his older son. Apparently, this is God's will. And unlike Isaac, Jacob submitted to God's will here. Jacob then turns to the rest of his sons, shows how the oldest three are bypassed, and how Judah, the fourth oldest, is going to be the line of royalty. How he will be king over the family and over all the nations. Jacob then breathes his last. His family mourns over him. And even the Egyptians mourn for him. The brothers take him back to Canaan and bury him in Hebron, as Jacob made them promise to do. And after burying their father, Joseph and his brothers return to Egypt one more time. And the brothers fear that now that dad's gone, Joseph's wrath will begin. And Joseph assures them, no way. I have forgiven you. Verse 20 of chapter 50. Perhaps one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And the book closes with Joseph dying in Egypt, but still having an eye to the promised land. So, that's the story. And what's the big idea? What's the big idea of this last part of Genesis? What does it teach us? Does it teach us how to be virtuous and faithful in difficult seasons of life? Yeah, it does. It certainly does. You look back at Joseph's time in prison. If anyone had permission to feel that despair of Murphy's Law, like we talked about last week, if anyone had permission to be a pessimist, to expect nothing good from life, it was Joseph. But even in prison, he remembered God's power and God's goodness. It's not in him, he tells Pharaoh. It's God who will reveal truth and offer protection. Joseph leans on God, and God shows up in a big way. Even if it's not in the timing that Joseph would have designed for himself, I'm sure he would not have designed for himself the plan God put him through. But at the end of his stint in prison, Joseph can testify how greatly God had cared for him. And he could see that all of his hardship was light. I wonder, I wonder if Joseph knew that that kind of moment was coming for him. That he would one day see how all of the hard stuff he went through that God used it for a reason, that it is actually light. I wonder if that kept Joseph going. But we don't have to wonder if that kind of moment is coming for us in our future. Because friends, Romans 8, 28, though we know it really well, it's actually true. 
We can be faithful now, endure now, because we expect that God will work all things together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. But I don't think that's the big idea from this portion of Genesis. Is the big idea then how to display your emotions properly? Well, we certainly get hints of how to do this. And if you haven't read these chapters in its entirety, I encourage you to do that. Do that even this afternoon if you don't have plans. They're really good, I promise. And one of the things you'll notice as you're reading Genesis 40 to 50 is how much crying there is. I mean, Joseph just blubbers all the time. When Joseph sees his brothers and they don't know who he is yet, he has to keep sneaking away to cry. And like even one time he cries so loudly that everyone's wondering what's going on. <laughs> Who, who's crying? But then there's another really moving, moving scene when his dad, Jacob, sees Joseph again, his favorite son, the one son he thought to be dead. You look at chapter 46. I, I love this. Chapter 46, verse 29. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Wept a good while. You ever held on to someone and just not wanted to let go, ever? I've heard one preacher say, that when we meet God, I don't know what this will be like, but I like this image. When we meet God, God will say, do you need a hug? <laughs> and we'll say, oh, yes. And he'll say, you can stay here as long as you want. Stay here 100 years if you like. I got time. The Joseph story gives us a small taste of that. But I don't think that's the big idea either. <laughs> Is the big idea then how to forgive those who have wronged you? Well, we get this too in the Joseph story. And we have to force ourselves to ask ourselves, do we trust in God enough not to hold grudges? Think about all the time that Joseph had just to think. <laughs> just to think. I mean, 10 plus years in prison after his brothers got him there. All that time, Joseph had to stew in bitterness. I don't know, if, if it was me, I'd be like drawing my schemes on my cell wall, like, like plot to get revenge on my brothers. It doesn't happen. You may say, well, Joseph tested his brothers to see if they changed. People have to change before we forgive them. Well, fully reconciling with someone requires that the person changes. And for us, if we have wronged someone, we need to humble ourselves to seek God's help to make it right. But that's reconciliation. Friends, forgiveness is something that's on us. See, this for Joseph. I mean, 
the fact that Joseph didn't seek his brother's life as soon as he saw them, it's, it's got to mean that there is a change in Joseph's heart, that already in Joseph's heart, he had forgiven them. I mean, Joseph's words in chapter 50, verse 20, that famous verse, it shows that he doesn't deny that his brother's actions were evil. He doesn't have to deny that, and God doesn't ask us to, to, to deny that. He just knows that his brother's actions couldn't thwart God's good plan. It's God's faithfulness. It's God's provision that enables Joseph to forgive and not to hold a grudge. So forgiveness follows the example of Joseph here, and it follows the example of our Lord, who cried while he was on the cross, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So let's ask God to test our hearts to see where we are possibly withholding forgiveness. And let's ask for help to trust him enough not to withhold it any longer. Is the big idea from the Joseph story how God's providence is compatible with human responsibility? How God can control all things, yet how we still have to make choices? Is that the big idea? Well, it certainly shows us some of this. I mean, the obvious place to look is at that famous verse, chapter 50, verse 20. But you can go back even further. Look at chapter 41, where Joseph gets God's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph explains what will happen to Pharaoh in verse 32. Verse 32, chapter 41. He says, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Fixed by God. It's locked in. It's going to happen. So, what, so now what? What does Joseph say to do? Oh, it's fixed by God, so we don't have to do anything. No, the very next thing Joseph says to do is to act. He tells Pharaoh, God's fixed this, so now we must act. The fact that God has determined it is why they must act. God ordained the end, and he also ordained the means, how he would bring about that end. And it's often the case that he uses the means of our actions, our prayers, our evangelism, to bring about what he says will happen. And that's just one example and the obvious one is from chapter 50, verse 20. Let's read it again. Chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Theologian D.A. Carson writes this. In one event... The selling of Joseph into slavery, there were two parties and two quite different intentions. On the one hand, Joseph's brothers acted and their intentions were evil. On the other hand, God acted and his intentions were good. Both 
acted to bring about this event. But while the evil must be traced back to the brothers and no farther, the good in it must be traced back to God. This is a common stance in Scripture. It generates many philosophical discussions. But the basic notion is simple. God is sovereign and invariably good. We are morally responsible and frequently evil. What's the big idea? We're getting a little bit closer. It's not how to be faithful and virtuous in difficult seasons. It's not how to display your emotions properly. It's not how to forgive. It's not how to show how providence and responsibility mesh together. We see all these things and more in the last part of Genesis. The big idea, however, is related to the big idea of the Bible. It's that through God's providence, God works to reverse the curse of sin and fulfill his promises. So I'm helped here by a member of the church I attended in Louisville. Uh, His name's Sam Amati. He has some really great insights about the Joseph story. But but, um, as we begin, does anyone remember Bob Ross? You know who Bob Ross is? Uh, Bob Ross is an artist who had a show on PBS, uh, like the many great shows on PBS. And every episode, he would draw you in because of his unwavering optimism and his big afro. Um, He would start with a painting just with few random strokes. And he'd be all smiley and kind of hippie-like and very cheery. And he would say, you'd think to yourself these random strokes, like, how can that be a part of his plan? But sure enough, he uses all those little strokes that seem like nonsense to work together for a beautiful plan. So at the close of Genesis, there are several of those seemingly rough-looking random strokes that don't appear to contribute to the final beautiful painting. Remember back in Genesis 3.15, after everything goes wrong, God promises to Adam and Eve that Eve, from you, from one of your descendants, there will be one who crushes that serpent who led you into sin, and thus Eden will be restored. But at the close of Genesis, that seed of the woman is barely surviving. See, the family was divided and scheming and violent against one another and trying to kill one of their own. You saw in Genesis 38 that the seed was threatened by impurity because of sin and being defiled by those who would take them away from God. In Genesis 42, we see that the seed is threatened because of a famine. They may not survive. But all these threats to these seeds, all these random, seemingly nonsense strokes are reversed by God. And he does that through Joseph. So even though the family was divided, Joseph extends forgiveness to reunite them. Even though the family was previously threatened by sinful influence of those around them, Joseph settles them in a place in Egypt where they will be protected from that influence. 
even though the family was subjected to famine, Joseph preserved his family through the wisdom and position that God gave him. So those curses, God reverses those curses through Joseph. But it's not just that. It's more than reversing the curses. It's fulfilling promises. It's God who uses Joseph to start to bring about some of those promises he made to Abraham. It's through Joseph God blesses the nations. Look what happens to Potiphar's house when Joseph is there. Look what happens to Pharaoh's house when Joseph is there. Look what happens. It says the whole world is fed through Joseph. But it's because of Joseph that the family of Israel is not just promised that they will be like the stars of heaven, that they will be fruitful and multiply. No, in chapter 47, verse 27, it's not just they are promised that. They are fruitful, and they have multiplied. What's more, Joseph is even seen as a royal figure in Egypt. And that's a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that kings will come from him. Reverse curse, fulfilled promises through God's unique providence in using someone like Joseph. So here, as Genesis closes, we see the covenant to Abraham, all those promises, those are secure in God's hands. All those random strokes, those nonsense strokes, will not affect the final beautiful picture. In fact, they'll make it even more beautiful. So God shows his power and his faithfulness to keep and fulfill his promises through one as unlikely as Joseph, one who was rejected but ended up being royal. So Joseph then, Joseph is just a small preview of what God has done in that grand big story. How God used one seed from the line of Abraham to reverse all the curse, to bring all the promises of redemption. And that seed came from the line of Judah. You go back to Jacob's last words to Judah in chapter 49, verse 8. Chapter 49, verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Bow down before you. Have we heard that before? Isn't that what Joseph was promised? So here, the, the one who would come from Judah would be like Joseph, that royal figure who would come from Judah, from whom the scepter will never depart, chapter 49, verse 11 says. That one will be like Joseph. So the future Messiah would be rejected, despised by men, betrayed by his own. As an act of evil against him, people would unjustly accuse him and kill him by means of the most gruesome criminal death. But the single most evil act in all of history, God used for the greatest good in all of history. The salvation of sinners. 
The story of Genesis and the story of Joseph are just microcosms of the big story of Jesus. Through one who is seemingly insignificant and rejected by his own, God accomplishes his plan to fully and finally reverse the curse and fulfill his promises. So that the one who was rejected is now the one who is reigning. Like Joseph was brought down to prison and then brought up to second in command, so Jesus endured the cross and has now put on his crown. So God's plan in Genesis and God's plan in his son, it might seem messy. We wouldn't have painted it that way. But it is for our greatest good and God's highest glory. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the story of Genesis is God getting all the glory in keeping his promise to bring people back to himself. And friends, what's described in Genesis is only the beginning of what God fully and finally does in Christ. Genesis is the start of the road that leads to the one who was rejected and died in our place and was raised to reestablish God's rule of peace with us, to restore what was lost at Eden. Are you included in that story? Is the curse of sin reversed in you? Is God's promise of salvation to bring him back to himself, is that extended to you? Friend, all those things come through Christ. No one else has done this. So turn from your sin the way you are living and believe in Jesus alone. Bow your knee to the king. He invites you. Friend, are you included in this story? Rejoice. Rejoice. He is in control and has reversed the curse and accomplished the promise of salvation in his son. God has gotten the glory. God gets the glory. And he will get the glory forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you have done what we cannot. We were lost, and we have been found. And you have done it. You have fulfilled your promise to those, not just unworthy, but those deserving of the opposite, deserving your judgment. Yet Jesus paid it all. So, God, all to him we owe. Help us. Help us see your glory. Help us long for it. Help us long for the day when we are without the sin that drove the bitter nails into our Savior. The day when we will forever glory in our Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen.